Carry nearly 80 gigs of data in my head. You're in the mainframe. It's eating through Greg's entire system. Access encoded. Gigabyte of RAM should do the trick. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. Hello and welcome to We're In, a podcast that gets inside the brightest minds in cybersecurity. I'm Jeremiah Rowe. And I'm Bella Deshantz-Cook. Today, we're talking to Nicholas Shalane, the former U.S. Air Force and Space Force Chief Software Officer. So, Jeremiah, I admittedly don't know a whole lot about Space Force, but it sounds pretty cool. What do you know about it? Well, first off, I'm a huge fan of UFOs, and that's exactly what the Space Force is about. Not. Uh, no, so the Space Force is doing some really great things in uh, in software development, DevSecOps processes, and uh, at DevOps processes. They're implementing new things uh, that are hugely successful and innovative from an Air Force perspective. That's awesome. Since he left the military, Nicholas has been quite outspoken about what he feels about some serious inefficiencies inside the Defense Department, especially when it comes to technology and innovations. He also has a lot to say about China and artificial intelligence. We'll get into that after a quick word from our sponsor. The cybersecurity talent gap is growing. Is your organization feeling its effects? Instead of spending time on an exhausting search for your next candidate, get help today with on-demand security tasks available at the click of a button. Synac campaigns match the tasks you need done with a capable, skilled researcher. Go to synac.com slash campaigns. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K dot com slash campaigns. Nick, thanks so much for joining. Uh, thanks for having me. So obviously you recently left the Air Force as its first chief software officer. You made something of a splash on the way out. And basically when you announced that you were leaving, there were numerous ways of things that you outlined in which the DOD was not necessarily walking the walk when it comes to prioritizing basic IT issues. So from your point of view, what are the three most glaring problems with how the Pentagon approaches software development and cybersecurity? So I think the, the largest one is the lack of adoption of Agile. You know, Agile is 22 years old. You know, when I created my, my first company back in France, I was 15. I was already using Agile 22 years ago. And really, at the end of the day, we don't see a lot of training and implementation of Agile at all in DoD, which really leads to the inability to move at the pace of relevance and tremendous waste of taxpayer money, I would argue, at the very you know maximum, we get ten cent on the dollar for every um, return investment made on on the investment by the taxpayer money in capabilities. So that's uh, pretty bad. So we feel complacent. We feel good about spending more money than everybody else. Doesn't mean it's spent well and wisely and, and effectively. So that's point number one: lack of agility. We don't invest in our people, so we don't invest in that continuous learning and, and enabling and empowering the, the right people. You know, we put people in charge that have no background in those key challenges like clouds. You you wouldn't see a Google, someone that's never even run a, a, you know, a data center for 20 people in their basement in charge of Google Cloud, yet that's what we do in the, the largest implementation of cloud in, in, the, in the world with a lot of the you know, critical security challenges we, we have. And then I think the the last piece is the lack of joint work where we see egos getting in the way uh, of and compounding the, the talent problem and the lack of efficiency we have by creating more redundant work, by having teams you know, build basic layers of life in IT like cloud and connectivity, data fabric, you know, um, AI, ML capabilities, where we should create joint, joint offices, you know, um, that will 
be led by government people that that have experience doing those and uh, merge, bring the best talents across all the, the duty services and have the government be the integration uh, team and not uh, a big prime. And more importantly, uh, having, you know, buying capacity of work and talents with a very clear definition of done and how we buy and how we deliver the code into a government furnished, you know, DevSecOps environment and and really all the critical aspect of successful delivery of, of software continuously, you know, efficiently with baked in security. You mentioned the sort of not investing in continued learning and training for folks or, or also kind of alluding to putting folks in positions of having to lead an, a group or an, an effort and maybe not having prior experience with that. Can you talk a little bit more about how that happens and what that issue is? Most of the time, you know, two or three star generals and, and below are rotating and, and assigned to different roles, often without understanding a career track and thinking effectively. Uh, it's just about management and you can just rotate people and, and they can just manage people despite having no experience in the field. Instead of having someone with experience doing something like this that knows what works and what doesn't work and doesn't have to figure it out in the job. Also, when they finally get good at it, they rotate every two to three years. So by the time they get good, you go back to square one with someone new. Is there an option or like a different approach that you would recommend or that would work better for the technology field? And also kind of why does that approach not work well for technology? Yeah, well, I think I think it doesn't work well with anything. <laughs> so I don't think that stops technology. I think we're getting away with it because, you know, technology, I guess, is moving such as a fast pace. So it's compounded. The impact that, that this has is compounded by the velocity of IT, right? And so you could get away with stuff that moves, you know, with cycles of 10, 20 years, but in IT, where now, you know, we move from 20 to 10 to 5 to maybe a year cycle now, uh, you don't have the luxury of time. So um, all these uh, mistakes compound over time and create issues. And, you know, in terms of solving the problem, it's just fairly simple. You look at experience of people and you build and create, you train and invest in people and create career tracks, you know, very early on, just like China is investing, you know, six, seven years old kids, you know, in training them on AI and data science and and different things, you can do the same. Even when you start in the military, you know, if you're going to invest in a in a captain or or major, that's going to start getting hands-on, you know, coding and and cloud learning and all this stuff. That's the right leader of tomorrow uh, when it comes to um, um, to all these different uh, you know, fields. So just do that, right? Just invest in those people and and keep them in the career track. There's no career track right now. In fact, IT is often seen as a dead end where you never make it uh, to become a, a general officer. So that's a, that's a problem, you know. So what fundamental changes inside the Pentagon need to take place for it to truly embrace proper mindset when it comes to cyber and operational effectiveness? Well, first, we need to stop being complacent. You know, we've seen China slowly and surely catch up and people keep dismissing this, calling them, you know, near-peer adversary where really I think they're leading in, in cyber and, and AI. And so they are peer and they're not near peer and we need to wake up and, you know, people are waiting for this kind of crazy event to happen to wake up and that's just foolish and criminal. So people need to take proactive action, you know, but uh, having a basic understanding of agile, you know, I've seen it even in the recent days after my, uh, my resignation, people responding saying, you know, either 
army CIO saying that AI is allegedly baked into every army program from the get-go, which is a complete lie, all the way to, uh, you know, the Jake, the Joint AI Center director, say that we're going to be implementing AI in a slow but incremental pace, which is um, very wrong as well. Uh, the answer is fast and incremental. <laughs> uh, so it, it, got, it got half right, at least this time, before it was it was slow and uh, monolith- monolithic implementation. So I guess... Uh, that's progress, but um, <laughs> again, that's back to my uh, comment on, on lack of understanding of agile. You know, we need to uh, to step up the game there and, and create a sense of urgency. But also, you know, people use the fact that I'm uh, coming out and, and saying all this stuff publicly, as uh, saying you know that's an operational security risk, upsec risk of me talking and putting our nation at risk by being transparent like this. Where first, obviously, that's a joke because China has much more intelligence than me talking about this stuff. So that's, again, vastly underestimating what China can do in terms of intelligence. But um, on top of that, the real reason is that people created this concept to make sure that no one is ever held accountable because we're going to classify stuff and we're not going to talk about stuff. So that way, you know, if you mess up, you know, it's not going to come out and, and no one will be upset about it. And you see billions of taxpayer money being wasted on programs again and again every year, often same programs getting, you know, keep missing their targets and deadlines and, you know, money uh, being wasted and, and uh, no one ever knows about it. Is that a beautiful? That's a great model. You know, billions of taxpayer money, 750 billion a year. Everybody feels good about investing in defense. Congress is happy. We Congress mandates uh, the DOD to plan five years to 10 years ahead on where to spend money. Don't understand basic understanding of capacity of work on how a company would, would behave. No one is thinking five years ahead in IT. It's completely insane. It's not realistic. All these are guesstimated at best and complete, uh, completely wasting uh, everybody's time writing these plans and begging for money in these silos. So I, I think, you know, you want to change the way we, we fund things. We need to buy capacity. We need to be able to groom the backlog and prioritize work based on what's going on in the world. You know, you've seen China launch their hypersonic missile. And again, Pentagon leaders starting to talk about a Sputnik moment. Oh, near, near. It's a near Sputnik moment. It's not. They're never going to admit it's a Sputnik moment because it is, but they're not going to say that. And that's, you know, again, right? Complacency, hiding, you know, most um, people talking about this will say, well, you know, we can't talk about it. It's classified. And, and so, of course, hiding behind that, that wall, magical wall that we decide to use whenever whenever we want, whether, whether or not there is a real risk, you know, like... Why is the Chinese launch classified to the Americans? If we know stuff about China, why is it a risk for Americans to understand the threats? Not describing our stuff makes sense. Well, we can't really innovate unless we understand those risks, right? And we can, you know, if we can't even go to American companies and say, hey, look at what China is doing and look at uh, the aggressiveness and, and uh, you know, this is really an existential threat for our kids. And you know you see Google you Google walking away from Project Maven three years ago because a couple of uh, hundred of employees say you know they didn't want to do business with DoD, where you know vision capability could have potentially saved the seven kids that were killed in Afghanistan, which was a disgrace again recently by targeting the wrong target, which again no one is held accountable for. And so technology not only can improve that, but people walk away saying we don't want to kill more people or whatever. But the, the fact is you're also saving lives. And you, you know, also having the deterrence and the uh, a great warfighting capability will prevent wars, which will kill millions potentially of, of people. So maybe people also need to get out of their bubble. 
So on that, I know, you know, beyond just this conversation, uh, I know you've talked recently about this technological race between the U.S. and China, specifically around artificial intelligence, cybersecurity. And, you know, you're kind of making the point that China is advancing more quickly than the U.S. What is at stake in this race for dominance in the technological field? Life, I think, uh, in, in 10 to 15, 20 years from now, America as we know it and the value we have and, and the freedom we enjoy will be at risk of going away if China dominates in AI like they're doing now. And if we don't wake up by December 2022, there's going to be no chance of catching up because of the volume of data, the, the size of you know China with 1.5 billion people and the velocity at which they move. At some point, there's a physical aspect of you know, uh, exponential velocity where you can't, you can't even catch up, physically speaking. So time is now. That's why I left and I felt we were running out of time. And, and I've been pushing and raising that awareness from the inside for three years with very little action and more complacency and, and more reports telling us we have more time than we have. Again, a recent report says, you know, we don't wake up by 2030. That's will be too late. But they're they failing to realize that, uh, uh, they're not taking into account the velocity and the, the volume of data they have compared to what we got. And effectively, that, that's going to make it very difficult, if not impossible, to then wake up at that time. So it's foolish to say that's the deadline by which we have to wake up. That's the, the day by which we're done. <laughs> and so if we want to wake up and fix it, uh, not only because of the bureaucracy and the, 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 the slow pace of, of government um, compounded to the you know, less data, less people, less access to experts. Uh, of course, China mandates their Chinese companies to give them access to all the data. TikTok is effectively uh, an intelligence weapon of China on U.S. citizens right now, capturing everything from, you know, your pictures, your, your information from your phone, your biometrics, all the way to uh, what's in the background, what you see, what, you, what you're wearing, <clears throat> you know, what you're thinking, what you're talking about, what's like, if you look at, you know, your video when you're streaming, what you have on the wall, what's behind you, you know, what you're talking about, what you're wearing. Uh, that's a very scary amount of data that they can use to um, train their AI algorithm <clears throat> to stop spreading misinformation, start uh, understanding the mood and the, the state of America and the citizens and what to do to shift debates and, and, and uh, potentially, you know, impact elections and different things, it's a very scary thing. And, and that's supported and sponsored by, by U.S. companies that decide to ignore those companies and where they all very well know that this data ends up in China and the CCP has full access to it. What is the government's role in protecting U.S. citizens from this kind of issue, right? Like TikTok is an, an application that all of us private citizens can elect to like it's our choice to download that and it seems so harmless and and i know it's not just tiktok i know that's one example um but like what is the government's responsibility how can they protect citizens like what should they be doing here well you know it depends right i mean it depends where you or far you want to go right uh it depends if you're going to talk to republicans or democrats um you, you you see a lot of people take proactive action to protect people right people are completely fine banning the former president of the united states of social media Right, that's okay. Yet we don't ban TikTok out of the Play Store and Apple Store. Why? Why not? You know, what's? Why wouldn't we do that? China bans countless U.S. companies from their stores and their internet 
uh, you can go to Google in China. Why do we let them come here? You know, we could have a TikTok American, right? I mean, TikTok technology is not mind-boggling. We could have a TikTok in the U.S., right? Particularly when you start understanding what's behind it and the drive and why it's so viral and why it's designed to be viral, what's, why it's designed to collect so much information and data about kids. And, and look, those kids are completely left and protected. They don't understand that this data is never going to go away. You know, their entire life is monitored. You know, we have a responsibility as parents to, to take action, right? And the government, in my opinion, should ban it, right? Um, th- without a doubt. Um, particularly when it's that obvious, right? Sometimes you don't know. I mean, you see Facebook giving, sharing data left and right and getting away with it. And look, people are adults and they understand, but you have kids too, right? So at that, at that point, who is deciding for the kids? Well, do you have parental consent? Are you signing a form to allow your kids to go to Facebook? Uh, are they lying of their, about their age? How do you know? You know, who has access to what? Some companies, I mean, you've seen recent testimony front of Congress that were pretty concerning if you watch them uh, on, about Google, you know, Google, TikTok, in fact, was there, couldn't really answer the question about Chinese access to data in a tangible way. I mean, we should demand, for example, these companies to provide an exhaustive list of what company uh, get access to, to the U.S. data. What, why can't we know? What, why can't you tell us who has access to that data? particularly if it's foreign foreign companies, particularly if it's Chinese companies. And so I think, if in my opinion, we should ban Chinese apps like this. And we should also, um, of course, move back all the supply chain we, we offloaded to China, which puts us in a tremendous risky situation, both on the healthcare side, all the way to every aspect of life, as we know it from chips to, to everything. The masks you bought for COVID are all made in China, right? Why is that? You don't think we can make masks? Uh, you know, it's just we decided to offload, you know, this 20 years ago, gave them all that IP. They stole a lot of it, created uh, their own version of it. Even companies that go to China, what's the benefit, right? You're going to go to China. It's a big market. You see all these companies in digital media and all that, like Disney, be excited about, you know, China. But then they, they failed to realize in history, when you look back, um, they let you come in and all to steal and, and create a local Chinese version and ban you and kick you out. <laughs> so what's the long-term benefit of going to China? Why would you want to go to China when you know that it's not the Chinese people? I don't blame the Chinese people, but the fact is the CCP is an enemy. It's not anything else but an enemy to the, the United States and, and our kids. So we need to treat them as such. If we know applications are, are coming from China and 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 the CCP has access to that data, we should be more than concerned. We should take proactive action. We can have a U.S. company create a, a TikTok number two, right? Call it TikTok. I don't care. So moving on from, so kind of taking a step back from, from the TikTok conversation, you know, we talked a little bit about the government sort of being a little bit lacking as far as a technical technological advantage in this area. But I think at least from my perspective, it does seem like there's a lot of research and innovation happening in academia and the private sector. You know, you mentioned SpaceX as an example. What what could the government be doing to kind of emulate that, the pace that we see more often in the private sector? Well, I think it's really should be driven very much like we did back in the day with Bell Labs and all these <clears throat> innovation labs with private private-public partnerships but also stop overclassifying all these, the information about the threats and why this matters. So people will want to proactively engage. And I, I believe most Americans will, will say, hey, 
you know, if, if they saw what I saw, they would be like, well, you know, I want to join and, and join the fight and help in AI and, and, and try to bring my, my skills and my capabilities to, to the fight proactively without having to um, force anybody to do that. But because they don't know, and, and like I said, there's this Silicon Valley bubble of everybody is nice and, and, and happy, and they fail to realize sometimes that uh, without the sacrifices of the warfighters, uh, we'll be in a different situation right now, potentially speaking a different language. That's something we can't forget, right? And so we need to have the deterrence. We need to be strong. We need to uh, ideally never use those weapons, but we need to have them. And so those partnerships, you know, driven by uh, understanding of the threats and the risk and enabling that uh, joint partnership and, and removing the classification barrier and, and all the nonsense we created to allegedly protect the U.S. data, but really... And, in, and ending up putting us more at risk by becoming irrelevant. Uh, soon enough, no one is going to try to hack us because we're so far behind and irrelevant that we're not going to have a cyber risk because no one is going to try to hack us anymore. So you've said that inside the DoD, if they could understand the velocity behind the way companies like Google and SpaceX operate, um, it would cause their heads to explode, literally. And so with that in mind, how do you think that we can get the DoD to change those antiquated systemic processes and act more like Silicon Valley. Yeah, and obviously it might not be literal, but um, might actually, they might not actually explode. <laughs> I kind of misspoke <laughs> on that one. But who knows? You never know. Uh, maybe it's going to be so crazy that they're going to have an AVC. You know, um, <laughs> I don't know. But the key aspect is to also bring people from the outside like me into the government so we actually show them what a normal pace is. I think if they go to SpaceX, they're going to they're gonna realize pretty quickly that there's a massive issue the issue is when we send people to spacex they don't come back or they they come back and they want to make change and they're so frustrated that we're not listening to the changes they're proposing that they end up uh, leaving even faster than they would have if they didn't go to spacex so we we can retain them so there's a problem here where if you're going to bring people in like me you're going to you're going to want to listen you're going to want to take action you're going to want to let them do the work you know we're not policy shop i remember some people when Dr. Roper left, uh, the Air Force was my boss. I really like Dr. Roper, by the way. Yeah, Dr. Roper is awesome. But um, when he left, people started to say, well, you, you, you should be an advisor. You shouldn't be doing stuff, right? Well, that's not why you bring someone like me in the government. You know, I'm a, I, I created 12 companies. You know, I, I build products. That's what I do. If you want an advisor, you want a policy shop, you want a governance shop, pick somebody else, right? But that's what short-sighted, you know, uh, three-star generals do uh, when they have no background in actually doing something. One of those things that helps to keep innovation happening in the private sector, interestingly enough, also aligns with salaries, right? And I think that there's a vast despairing difference between why we see uh, warfighters leaving the DOD and going to private sector. Not only is there that glaring issue between being able to get anything done and what they're paid to do those things inside the DOD. I don't think it's the most important problem because I think... People really care about the mission and, and they will take some level of pick up. Unfortunately, it got to be to be way too much, right? You're talking often now two, three, four X the pay cut. So that's a, that's a pretty big one. And that's only a problem, right? We need carrier tracks. We need to, and, and you know, Congress talks about creating an AI carrier track. Again, they failed to even understand that we don't have a software and cloud track. Um, and so, you know, and data science track first to even get to AI track. So maybe we need to solve that first. We certainly need to completely reinvent the way we, we hire. The fact that it's, you know, the clearance process is so hard to get 
and then you can't keep it if you don't stay in the game is making it very difficult for people to go back to the commercial side, come back and make a difference again. You know, you, you're becoming stale, you're becoming complacent. I was feeling myself, you know, almost becoming part of the problem because you get used to the lack of velocity and, and the frustration and you get more, less and less eager to uh, to move fast because you're frustrated. And so leaving and coming back, I think it's great, right? I think that should be uh, enabled, but, but the, the system is designed on purpose, you know, to create this DoD bubble so there is no competition of talent because they know that if they had the opportunity to compete against people coming from the commercial side, most of the time they will lose that battle and they will lose their jobs. And so better if we don't enable people to come from the outside because now you have this small bubble and all you do is rotating people around. You're not really enabling, enabling the best leaders and the best doers of the commercial companies come and compete into that game so you're protecting your your job by by creating this uh, uh, DoD bubble so thinking about our adversaries in both cybersecurity as well as you know technology to begin with our audience is is definitely aware of the many many cyber attacks that have currently contributed to China and others so as an example Microsoft Exchange hack is just more uh, one of the more recent ones um, how do you think the US should ultimately respond to these kinds of incidents going forward first of all we need to step up our game in defense right because i can tell you the the cyber posture today of critical infrastructure and the departments most u.s government agencies is really at the kindergarten level compared to the u.s companies you know i pushed your trust five years ago at uh, at dhs and uh, all to be told that uh, that was too early and they didn't believe in zero trust now it's finally mandated all to have a plan by 2027 to get there so uh, effectively you see a 12 la- 12 year lag of of um, implementation between the commercial side, best practices, and the government. That's pretty scary because you don't have that luxury of time uh, anymore in, in IT. So first, you know, let's fix that and, and bring Zero Trust. I brought the largest implementation of Zero Trust in the Air Force and Space Force in four months, and we grew it to a pretty large scale uh, after a year and a half. And yet you see, you know, DODCA and DISA now create a, a new bid to start from scratch and not reuse any of the work we've done in the Air Force and Space Force in Zero Trust, all to focus on unclassified work where we have all classification levels from the get-go at the Air Force. So clearly we need to stop the silos and the egos uh, issue there. But then, you know, when you look at um, the defense side, of course, you know, that's preventing, you know, ideally making sure that not uh, everybody can get into our systems tomorrow, but you know, do we respond in kind? You know, do we actually know for sure that uh, the actor is who we think they are? I've, I've always had issues with that attribution because I would argue the best hackers very much likely pretend to be who they are not. And so, you know, best Chinese hackers, best Russian, yeah, best Russian would pretend to be Chinese. And, and the indicators we use are anecdotal at best and I think could be faked uh, pretty easily by the most advanced teams. So I think... Um, it's a little bit ridiculous. So then if you don't know for sure, which is why effectively people say, well, you know, if someone attacks you like this, it's an act of war, you can fight back or attack back. Well, what if you don't know who did it? <laughs> what are you going to do? You know, uh, who are you going to push back on if you're not 100% sure that's who, who that is? So it's a little bit uh, different. And that makes it why I think so far, all the recent breaches, despite even sometimes... Um, knowing who allegedly did it or likely did it, uh, you've seen no real response in kind or uh, any of the sort 
from the U.S. because I, I do believe that people know deep down that um, maybe they're not 100% sure. Even though they can't necessarily attribute who is doing what because of that very real fact that, you know, if I'm going to emulate um, an advanced persistent threat, then I could just as easily emulate their tactics and the TTPs that we know about them or the indicators of compromise that that are developed from them. And in doing so, you know, utilize something like the Tor network and or my own subversive network that I've built based off of a very similar protocol to start attacking, switching IPs, attacking, switching IPs, and then emulating various known tools that they utilize. So aside from that specifically, what could we do maybe a little bit better to safeguard ourselves and the U.S. from those kinds of things that we aren't maybe doing today? Well, it's really investing in cyber, you know, and, and, and having the right talent and, and creating the talent. You know, I, I've seen a, in the news today that Microsoft is working with universities to fix half of the talent gap that we have in the U.S. in terms of cyber talents, which I believe is 1.8 million jobs missing uh, an applicant. But I'm also concerned now that, you know, are we going to just teach them Microsoft Microsoft technologies and create a lot of vendor looking stuff? That shouldn't be a single company solving that problem. It should be a, a joint effort to bring the best unbiased curriculum to make sure we have options and diversity of choice technologies to solve the problems. Otherwise, we're going to create biased uh, cyber experts. That's probably not a good idea. But what can the government do there specifically that private companies can't? So like you mentioned Microsoft specifically, and I know that there are a lot of other private companies investing in educating, you know, young people or people that want to change careers to solve this problem. But what what is something unique that the government could do and should do that that isn't happening yet? Well, you know, the, the government has massive budgets, right? So we they can invest also <laughs> into creating these curriculums, creating these uh uh, this urgency in universities, in schools, very early on, right? Education, very early on, uh, all the way, you know, um, at the kindergarten level. Who knows, right? <laughs> uh, that's where we are, anyway. So might as well start there. And then, you know, I think treating the problem seriously, you know, when it comes to staffing and manning of the critical infrastructure side, you know, DHS is is really behind in terms of base basic understanding of of zero trust and and securing uh, the critical infrastructure, power, water, you know, supply and so on uh, side of the house. So there's so much to do there. Uh, SCADA systems, you know, there's a lot of research that could be done, you know, to see how imp- zero trust can be implemented in these, um, you know, industrial control systems. Um, that's the kind of stuff that government needs to be leading because commercial companies are not going to care uh, about that market too much. So they, they, they are things that, the government needs to uh, pay attention to, you know, like I said, companies can be biased or have the company's interest at heart. The government should be more independent and have no bias towards one single company, you know, so. It seems like this conversation, so we're kind of having two conversations. One, this idea of investing in people who are, investing in training folks who are interested in getting into cybersecurity or advancing in cybersecurity, uh, but also investing in technologies that benefit cybersecurity as a whole. It seems like there's so many other areas and companies and and individuals even within this industry who are noticing how big of an issue this is and are doing something about it. And, you know, this idea of fixing the talent gap and this idea of identifying areas for companies to improve and doing them. And, you know, there's, there's so many buzzwords about cybersecurity right now. It seems like everyone is talking about it. Why 
why has that not really permeated or not permeated enough uh, into the government, into the into the public sector? I think it's back to the lack of urgency in the government and the, the lack of agility, you know, um, the waste of taxpayer money, like I said, 10 cents on the dollar, you know, you're wasting a lot of money in acquisition and contracting and all the boring stuff that, that effectively are supposed to protect the, the waste of taxpayer money, but create more taxpayer waste. So, um, you know, I think it's about how we execute having those talent in the government so they can make the right decisions, you know, um, if there is a, a massive wall of understanding of, of issues between the government people making decisions and the people trying to solve them on the commercial side, then you're never going to solve the problem in the government. And then all this critical infrastructure stuff is going to remain the same. There's also some lack of funding, honestly, um, as well, compounded by the waste, of course, of money. But uh, still, you know, we don't invest enough in critical infrastructure, I would argue. Um, there was some plus up. In recent years, but uh, it's probably not enough. When you look at state and local level, it's um, you know you look at nine one one systems. You look at a lot of the uh, critical infrastructure we, we have to deal with. It's it's massive volumes of companies. It's very siloed. You know, there's hundreds of companies creating the grid. It's not just one or two. You know, so how do you really spread that across the industry? These are big problems. And a lot of people think we're going to have to wait for this uh, Pearl Harbor cyber thing for people to wake up. But we had, I would argue, already some mini ones with uh, the oil pipeline and water supply in Florida got uh, hacked uh, and they changed the, the chlorine uh, volume in, in water, potentially you know killing uh, people. But that was caught uh, right on time. But that sounds to me like a pretty big deal. But yeah, you know, people just move on and, and keep... Uh, keep doing uh, more of the same. So, My perspective here is I, I have never worked for the government. I have very little insight into how the government works, military. I'm totally on the opposite side of things. And it's, I think, you know, to be honest, it's a little baffling to me to, to see the conversations happening in cybersecurity that just don't seem to be happening as much in, in the other side of things, uh, which is, I, I guess, why I'm kind of you know, keep pressing on this question. Like, how can this be? <laughs> I had the same feeling, believe me. <laughs> I, had, I was the same before going in the government. It's almost like, yeah, I want to do the same and send a few people two weeks in the government so their their head explode. Well, first, first you, you need to wait six months to get in the job. Used to be two years. Or nine months or 10 months. I've seen, I've seen someone in my team, yeah, I've seen someone in my team take 11 months to, to get started. And then you, you see, you know, you see uh, to be onboarded, get access to the building and get a laptop. You see another month to two months wasted. I mean, you never see that on the commercial side ever. I mean, I'm sure when you start your job the same day, you had your laptop and, and whatever, right? Since you've left um, the office of, of chief, first chief software officer of the Air Force, um, how have folks responded to you? Uh, based off of the things that that you've been sharing, some of the insight that you've gotten from, say, LinkedIn posts, from um, interviews that you've done with various news things, how have people felt from DoD? How have they responded based off of these things? Well, there's there's the people that love it and the people that hate it. There's no in in the middle. You know, I, I think there's more people that love it. Uh, a lot of people reach out to me privately. You know, most of them don't feel comfortable, of course, saying it publicly and that's okay but um got a lot of um people reaching out and and telling me thank you and even outside of dod as well or former you know veterans or or whatever right um even people that 
don't do much in DoD, you know, but, um, and then there's the people saying that I'm disrupting, you know, creating a personal security and, and uh, putting us at risk. And um, those are the problem. I, mean, I could almost uh, use that list as who to get rid of in the department. That would be a good short list of where to start uh, because they clearly are trying to protect their own interests. So that's, uh, that should be a list we're going to use in, uh, in a few years when I'm back in the government. Yeah. Uh, so you kind of mentioned a few years you're going to head back into the government. So have you decided what you're going to do next or any news that you'd like to share with any of the podcast listeners? <laughs> well, you know, I joined a few <laughs> boards to help a few companies and help and uh, working on a stealth uh, startup um, that's going to help uh, in space, in the space sector, not the, the DoD space, but the commercial space. You know, space is so hot right now. There's going to be a lot of excitement in space, a lot of companies trying to uh, build secure capabilities so i think uh, i'm pretty excited about space so that always uh, got me excited so i think uh, we're going to do something around space and uh, i'm going to keep raising awareness i'm going to spend a lot of time unfortunately for me because i'm not a i don't love it but um, i have to do it because no one is willing to do it uh, go on tv and talk about this and keep holding people accountable we have this um, every two weeks ask me anything events on linkedin where we do live at 1 p.m every other tuesday uh, we talk about all, you know, take questions live and bring guests and talk about different things uh, <clears throat> around agile and DevSecOps and how to implement agile in, in the government uh, and so on. And uh, you know, we're gonna we have this uh, clock ticking of December 2022 by which we run out of time in AI. So every month we're gonna hold people accountable on TV and and try to have the government get back to us and show tangible progress what is um, improving, what's uh, really uh, changing, and uh, are we doing enough so that when that clock runs out, we're not um, at a point where we lost uh, the, the battle. So I don't want to steal any thunder, so maybe you can just give us a, a taste of, of some of the stuff that you talk about on those conversations. Uh, basically, I, I want to know if, do you have any advice for folks working to fix this problem uh, within the military or the government more broadly that you would like to share here? Yeah, so I'm actually writing a, an open, uh, pretty long one <clears throat> where I'm going to list step by step all the all the things, the tangible things that can be implemented within uh, six to eight months to solve all these problems. So, so tangible steps from acquisition to contracting to learning, training, personnel, policies, you know, technology, implementations, joint work. So very precise and tangible things. It's uh, it's going to be a very detailed. Um, uh, article. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a, a step by step crawl walk run, <clears throat> in a very agile fashion and very precise, tangible enough so it's not um, just uh, bullet points, but uh, very precise guidance. And that's gonna probably come out in the next couple of weeks. There was recently the DoD Enterprise DevSecOps reference design that was just released. What What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, there was a version two point one released uh, uh, recently. And I, I I keep helping. You know, I'm I'm <clears throat> an advisor to uh, to the Air Force right now, unpaid, you know, just to help, and, and so we still, I, I still see a lot of eagerness to solve these problems. And Secretary Kendall was very clear; he wants to take action and, and fix a lot of this stuff. So, I think um, there is already good progress. It's very early, but um, I'm hopeful, and uh, I'm going to keep pushing and, and keep helping. And and um, you know, uh, Jason Weiss was um, named as the first uh, DoD CSO, so he's going to be pushing a lot of the. The good work, you know, is a, is a good friend and a, a good leader is going to do great work. And, and so I'm going to keep advising him and giving him my thoughts. 
and of course keep helping uh, who is going to replace me in the job and um, try to um, to help, of course, uh, uh, the Air Force CIO and um, everybody that's willing to listen. Looking back on your experience in the Air Force, if you had a do-over, is there anything that you would do differently? Yeah, I think where I wasn't good enough is to try to understand where, where some of these people were coming from. You know, there was such a a difference of culture and and everything was so different between the commercial side and the, and the, the government. And I was dropped into a job with no training, no understanding of anything. I wish I, I had more training and I more opportunity to understand where, where some of these people were coming from. And, you know, if, if I had done better there, I could have built better relationship with some of them. But, um, you know, I guess you live alone. And um, this is kind of the final question that we ask everybody just to sort of make it more real, I think. What is the one thing people wouldn't know about you by looking at your LinkedIn profile? That I'm a beekeeper. I would never have guessed that, actually. That's so cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. I have, I have honey. <laughs> it never expires. That's the best prepper food. How do you get over... Do you, were you just never afraid of bees? I don't... I can't, I can't relate. <laughs> oh, I'm not a big fan of bees, but uh, I, I've been stung a few times and my head oh, turns wow. into five times the size. So that's not fun. <laughs> but, you know, you have gear yeah. and you protect yourself. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of getting stung. Don't get me wrong. But um, usually they are pretty nice. You know, I have 100,000 bees. So that's a lot of bees. Um, and yeah, this is, this is fun. And you get, you get honey. It's got to be worth it for like top tier honey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get honey. I have chickens too. So I get eggs. You know, that's, that's fun. Nick, thank you so much for your time today. And I know uh, I personally really enjoyed this interview. So thank you for coming on the show. And I know I certainly appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. According to a recent survey, 95% of security professionals believe that the cyber talent gap has not improved in recent years. The number of open security jobs today is quickly approaching 4 million. Perhaps you're feeling the effects of the talent shortage in your security operations. What tasks are you struggling to get done? Whether it's performing due diligence on an M&A target, working through vulnerability checklists, or checking testing boxes off for compliance, Synac campaigns can connect you with a researcher capable of getting the job done. Don't spend any more time writing job descriptions and sifting through candidate resumes. Let us connect you with the right talent to augment your internal team. Get your backlog tasks taken care of and fulfill any specialty your team needs with Synac campaigns. Synac researchers are available 24-7, and campaigns can be launched at the click of a button in the Synac platform. Reach out today at synac.com slash campaigns. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K dot com slash campaigns.